In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light. Was, and God saw the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and, it, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And so it was, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one, into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters <clears throat> that were gathered together, he called seas and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegeta vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their, in which is their seed each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light onto the earth, on the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, amen. And the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind, livestock and creeping things and beast of the earth according to their kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to, to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over creeping things that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. 
And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with its seed in its, in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that had been done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. You could be seated. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning and we receive it. As even the writer of Hebrews says, we believe it. It's by faith that we believe that you created your creation. You created all that we see, all that we are, all that we have, all that we hold. You created it and you call us to lay it down for your glory, to give it back to you for your glory, Lord. So Lord, as we open up your word, be with us, be near us. May, may that which is fallen inside of us, that which is like Adam that wants to shake our fist at our creator, that which is filled with pride, that which with, um, as Paul writes in Romans 1, that wants to stand in defiance to you, that wants to suppress the truth and its unrighteousness. May you, by your power, by the power of your word, through the work of your spirit, may you break through. May you break through hard hearts. May you break through our obstinance. May you break through our rebellion. May we see you as a supreme creator, the one who has made us and made us for your own. Through you, Jesus, everything that, has been made, that is made has been made. It's been made by you and it has been made for you. May we see that today. In your name we pray, amen. Well, the storyline of the Bible, that's where we are. Um, it begins with the, the God of the Bible. The Bible is not a, a compilation of varied stories like what you may have in Aesop's fables, each with direction and examples how you should live. If that was the case, then uh, the Bible would be um, about us and it's not about us. The Bible is not about you and what you must do, but when read and understood rightly, the Bible is about God. It's a single story and it's not about you, it's about him. It's not about us so much about what you should do, what you must do, but it's about what he has done. He has made the world. He's made it as a reflection of his beauty and his glory and his, and his power. He's made the world, he's created it. We wrecked it through our rebellion. We've devastated his creation through mankind's rebellion. And he has re-entered the world in order to rescue the world. And he is going to remake this world. That's the storyline of the Bible. 
that as you read the, the, the Bible, no matter where you are, if you're in Genesis or Obadiah or Romans or Revelation, your job as you read the Bible is to keep the main thing, the main thing, and the main thing is the plain thing, and the plain thing throughout the Bible is the storyline of the Bible, and it's just simply that. God created it. We wrecked it. He came to rescue us in the person and the work of his son, Jesus Christ, and he is remaking it again. Now, I will freely admit, it is easy to miss the forest for the trees as you read the Bible. The Bible is long, it's varied, it's rich, it's got a bunch of characters and events and stories and places, and it seemingly provokes more questions than it answers. Those of you that are doing the Bible reading that Right now, we're working our way through the Bible, the storyline of the Bible. We've got little cards that have a Bible, a daily Bible reading, or at least five days a week in them. And so those of you that are working through them, maybe you found that. Maybe as you read and you, you read in uh, Genesis 6, where it talked about the sons of God marrying the daughters of man, and you like, what the heck is that about? Well, as you read in Job 1, and you read about the sons of God again, and this time it seems like he's talking about angels, and then there's Satan coming before the throne room of God, and you found Nephilim and you found Leviathan and behemoths and all of these things that you're reading about and you're going, what the heck? I mean, what happens there between Noah and Ham in a tent, in a vineyard? I mean, it seems as if it provokes as many questions as it answers. The only way to keep this wrapped together is to know the storyline of the Bible. And so before we dive down into Genesis, the first chapter, and I unpack it verse by verse, word by word. No, I'm not gonna do that. Before I look at the first five verses of the book of Genesis, let me give to you a thumbnail sketch of the storyline of the Bible. We're gonna go here, back here, time and time and time again. Here is what the Bible is about. That as a reflection of God's being, God is establishing his kingdom. As a reflection of God's being, his, his nature, he is creating and he is establishing his kingdom. And what is the kingdom of God? It is this, it is God's people in God's place under God's rule, enjoying God's creation. I mean, enjoying God's blessing. That is the kingdom of God. And what Genesis 1 and 2, as is already up on the screen, gives for us at the end of Genesis 2, we have the pattern of the kingdom of God. It is God's people, Adam and Eve. In God's place, the Garden of Eden. Under God's rule, we would have seen that if we would have continued reading in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, God gives them rule. You can eat, we saw that in Genesis 1, you can eat of every plant, of every tree. It's here for you to enjoy and to eat. But of this one tree, do not eat. Now, it's not about eating fruit. That's not what God is forbidding, but it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what he, ultimately what is happening here is God is saying, trust me to be the determiner of good and evil. Trust me in this. I know what's best. I know what is good. I know that it's evil. Trust me. Either you can trust me or you can presume to be me, to be God and say, no, we're the ultimate determiners of good and evil. And that's what Adam and Eve do. It's not about eating, it's about them wanting to be God. And God's rule was, trust me, that was his rule. Have faith in me, believe in me. And they break that by eating and saying, no, we'll be the ultimate determiners of good and evil. But also not only is there God's rule in the garden, there's God's blessing. They have the blessing of creation. They have the blessing of relationships. They have the blessing of God, most assuredly. God's presence 
is with them. And we're gonna look at that time and time and time and time again. We're gonna go back to God's people in God's place under God's rule, uh, enjoying God's blessing because that is where we're headed. We're headed to God's people, the church, and God's place, heaven, under God's blessing and rule. That's where we're going. Where was this all this ending? We just sang a song about it, about one who is worthy, that will sing around his throne, that redeems his church. Now, let's look at the text. Genesis chapter one, verses one through five. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We can start right there that what this teaches us, in fact, I wanna talk about just for a moment, I wanna talk about even before the beginning. Like Genesis is the book of beginnings, but it even gives us a glimpse in that first word as to what happened before there was a beginning. And so we could say this, that before there was a beginning, there was God. The storyline of the Bible begins with the God of the Bible. And before there was even a beginning, there was God, that God was present, what Genesis is teaching us and telling us, that God was present when everything else began, which means that God has no beginning. If everything began at a, if we could think of time linear in, in a linear fashion, if everything began at a point of time and God was there when everything began, that means that God predates, if you will, everything that began. He was present in the beginning. There has never been a time when God has not existed. He was present in the beginning and he created the beginning and everything that was in the beginning and everything that flows from the beginning, it all comes from God. The Bible is not, as I already said, it is not from us and it is primarily not about us. It is God's revelation of himself. It is God's self-disclosure that he's given to us about himself. And so we could ask this question, if God was before the beginning, there was God, then who is this God? Well, Genesis 1 reveals him. He reveals him by what he does and he reveals him as the supreme creator. In fact, you can write that down if you would like. In the beginning, before the beginning, there was God and who is God? Well, he is the supreme creator. He created all things, but hold on a second. If God existed before the creation, then what was God before he was supreme creator? Certainly supreme creator is in his essence, but if he existed before he created anything, then he had to be something before he ever created. And so what was he there and then? So we could say that he is a supreme creator. That is, that's true, but that's not the true essence of who God is. And the same way you may think about um, who you are by, by maybe what you do or whatever. I could say about myself that I am a, well, I'm a, I'm a husband and I'm a father and I'm a pastor. And those things are true about me. But there was a, a time that I wasn't a pastor. And there was a time when I wasn't a father before Luann and I were blessed with Kennedy. And there was even a time, believe it or not, I, it's hard for me to believe. I think I was six when I wasn't married, so I wasn't a husband. And so what's my true essence? Well, my true essence is I'm human, right? I've always been human. And I've always been male. I know that's not very popular to say, but it's true. I've always been male. And even more than that, though, I was born into a family. And so I've always been a son. There's never been a moment of my life that I've not been a son. And in the similar fashion, we could say that about God. That in a similar fashion, we get the very essence of God found in Genesis chapter 126, when he, God talks about creation and 
God speaks about it like this. He says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Both us and our are plural. So who is God talking to? Who is it that God is speaking to there? Well, we can say, is he talking to himself? Well, yes and no. That the God of the Bible is a Trinitarian God. That is that God has always existed in three persons existing in one being, always. Now I admit that the Trinity is one of the most difficult concepts to understand in the Bible. And when you start thinking about the Trinity and letting it fill your mind and you're gonna come up with different analogies, was well, just like water. Water can form in, in ice or it can be water or it could be steam. And then somebody tells you, no, you just committed heresy there, right? You try to think about ways and it feels as if at the moment that you're about to understand the Trinity, at that moment, your brain also feels like it's about to implode or explode. And then you go, which one is it? Is my brain imploding or is it exploding? And then you lose the idea of the Trinity. And I would say this, that's a very good thing. That's a very good thing for us to, to, to come to the understanding of the very essence of God and to say like, I can't quite understand it. And what you've got there is you've got something that is finite trying to understand something that is infinite, right? We as humans trying to understand our creator, but this much we know, and maybe this is helpful. I'll put a graphic up about the Trinity Here's a, here, here, if we could draw it in graphic form, here's the way we would say it is God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All are God, that's the is to the middle, all are God, and yet the Father is not the Son. They are distinct in essence and in persons, and the Father is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Son. And so we see that when God says, let us, he's speaking Trinitarian and, and, and using language of the Trinity there. Let us create man in our image, and yet all are God. That the creation, it reveals a creator. Creation reveals a creator. In Romans 1, 19 and 20, Paul picks up on that very thing. And he says, for what, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Well, how has God revealed himself to us? Verse number 24 is invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived. Ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. This was the verse that Pastor Brian was speaking about. That the problem, Paul says, is we suppress the truth in unrighteousness, but creation reveals a creator. If I walk into my daughter's bedroom, and there's a, a Lego tower, right? I don't say this Lego tower must have just appeared. These blocks must have miraculously stacked themselves on top of each other. I don't say that. What I say is, good job, Kennedy. No, that's my 17-year-old. I say, good job, Safira, my five-year-old. Good job, you stacked those together. Or if I hear music coming from my son's room, if I hear him playing his guitar, I don't think that, oh, the, the, the guitar must be magically playing itself. No, I think there's a, there's a maestro, right? There's a musician on the other side of that, of that room, on the other side of that door who must be playing that music, must be plucking those strings or to hear my daughter Kennedy downstairs singing. I don't, I don't think, oh, you know, she's a ghost. No, she's 
has being in persons. And we see that. And that is true with God. As we look at his creation, it points at him as the creator, the supreme creator, that only nothing can come from nothing. Think only nothing can come from nothing. If I hold in my hand a bucket of nothing, what can come out of that bucket of nothing? Nothing, right? That's, that's all that can come out of that. And if something comes out of that, then something had to come from that. That's something and that something had to create it. And that's what we have in Genesis 1. That everything starts with one God and he creates all by himself out of nothing. He's the one who begins it. He's the one who starts it and he creates it. It's creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. God creates it by speaking it. God's creation reveals that he is a creator and God's creation reveals his nature and his character. It also answers the question, I think, is why did God create? Well, here's why God created. God created as an, as an overflow of his nature and his character. That God creates as an overflow of his goodness. And we see that all throughout Genesis. And in fact, Genesis 1 is actually a, a Hebrew poem. It's more, art, it's more of an artistic celebration um, than it is historical documentation. That's why you may see some differences between Hebrews chapter one, I mean, I'm sorry, between Genesis chapter one and between Genesis chapter two. You go, what's the deal with these differences? Well, one's a song, one's a poem, and the other one's more worried about details. Genesis one is that Hebrew, Hebrew poetry. And like good music, it repeats itself. There's a chorus, there's a refrain throughout Genesis chapter one. Did you see it? Did you pick up on it? It's the refrain of, and God saw what he had made and it was good. Yea, it was very good. That creation is an overflow of God's being and his character and it's an overflow of God's goodness. And you and I, we live in a culture. See, again, sin and rebellion and, God, and rebellion to God has wrecked all of that. Because you and I, we live in a culture that stands in defiance to all that God has created and all that God has made that is good. If you think about what God has created and declared it to be good throughout Genesis chapter one, and then think about our present day culture, we have a culture that is point by point doing what Adam and Eve did in the garden and say, no, we will be the ultimate determiners of what's good and what's not good. Think about this, God creates, makes creation. He makes plants and waters and vegetations. And we live in, within a culture that abuses that. We live within a culture that either abuses the earth through poor stewardship or worships the earth. Like there's very few of us that live in the middle, but we either abuse it or we worship it. When we think about God making humanity, God makes man in his image and in his likeness which means that every human being is worthy of dignity and honor. It is what we call the Imago Dei. Every person has been made in the image of God and is worthy of dignity and honor. But you and I, in our culture, we mar the Imago Dei through racism and superiority or through pornography, where we say, no, you don't exist. You're not worthy of, 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 of respect and honor, but you're there for my pleasure to gawk at and to look at. We mar it through sex trafficking, through murder. We have folks in our culture who murder their children for the good of their career so they can get a trophy someday, so they can announce what they've done to the applause 
of the influencers of our society, that we live in a culture that we take every line by line of what God has declared to be very good. And we say, no, we will be the ultimate determiners. And we say, no, that is not good. God made them male and female. No, 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 gender is a spectrum. We're the ones to determine whether we're boys or girls. How foolish, how absurd. Certainly as you read Romans 1 and it says that God turned them over to a reprobate mind, a mind that no longer works. Certainly we can look at our culture and say, this is true of our culture. We're living in that. We're experiencing that. A world that calls wrong right, calls right wrong. It is us going against God's goodness. We're rejecting and standing in opposition to everything that God has declared good in Genesis 1 and 2. God creates and he creates as an overflow of his goodness, but God also creates as an overflow of his glory. What I mean by glory is God creates as an overflow of his greatness of how large and huge and impossible he is for us to even wrap our minds around. The psalmist writes in Psalm 19:1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above, it proclaims his handiwork. When psalmist writes that, that the, the heavens, he's not talking about our eternal reward. He's talking about our final, he's not talking about our final destination. What he's talking about is space. That's the heavens that he's speaking about. And when we think about space, thousands upon thousands of light years away, that we now, by God's grace, we have telescopes that allow us to see light, thousands upon thousands of light years away. Right? For those of us relatively my age, it was like the Hubble telescope. And now there's one bigger and better and more powerful that makes the Hubble telescope look like the one you can order for $29 off of Amazon. And it's capturing pictures of, of galaxies, not just stars, but whole galaxies that are out there. And some of us, as we think about that, the, the truth of that can can, can maybe shrink God. It can maybe put God, make God look smaller because you think like, oh my gosh, like how does God fit into that? I mean, you want to talk about a giant waste of space. I mean, that seems to be a giant waste of space that there's all of this space and all of this galaxies, but yet what is God declaring? What he's declaring there is that's how big I am. Those thoughts such as those and truths and, 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 and what science and uh Astronomy is showing us, right? I, I said the right one. I didn't say the one where you get your Zodiac from, right? Astronomy is showing us. It's showing us how big God is. That's what it's showing. Isaiah will say in Isaiah 40 that God measures the, the space. He measures the heavens with just the span of his hand. Hello, like a span is from point of thumb to point of pinky. And what he's saying is God is saying, I'm, I measured that out. And so this, when we find this, this doesn't shrink God, but what it should shrink is it should shrink our, our anxieties. That's what it should shrink. It should shrink of that. When you think about how, how big and how great and how full of glory God is, it should shrink your anxieties because that same God says, come and pray to me. Like when you pray, you pray to a God that measures out space, millions of light years or thousands or whatever of light years away. He can measure it with just a span of his hand. A God who can hold every bit of the water that is filled on this earth. He can hold it in the hollow of his hand. And when you pray to him about your measly cold or about your car that won't start or your child, 
or whatever it is, it is that you're praying. And he says, pray, pray, come, come pray, pray, pray. I love it when you pray. I love it when you ask. I love it when you persistently pray. I love it when you pray expectantly. Come and pray. That's the God you're praying to when you pray. Oh, it makes God glorious. It makes God big and it makes our problems seem so small. That's why he's done it. He's done it as an overflow of his glory. He's done it as an overflow of his wisdom. There's a dialogue that happens in Job. For those of you that are reading along in Job 38 and 39, there's this dialogue where where Job is calling God's wisdom and he's calling God's justice into question. And God answers him and he answers him by asking him the question, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, Job? Tell me, do you got understanding? You got a better idea than what I've got to come up with? And as we think about this creation, it points to a God who is wise and a God who is glorious and wise and a God who is, who is good. When we think about how God has created the sun, the moon, how he's tilted the earth on its axis, how he's caused the tides, how God can make a human eyeball, how God can make taste buds, how God can make a chicken. An ugly bird like that with little bitty scrawny wings and yet make those wings taste so good. (laughs) Only God can do that, right? Only God can do that. God creates as an overflow, not only as an overflow of his goodness, not only as an overflow of his glory, not only as an overflow of his wisdom, all of those being part of God's character and nature, part of his essence. He's not responding to anything. He's creating out of his being, he's creating. Now think about this for a second. God creates as an overflow of his mercy and grace. That God is putting his character, he's putting his nature on display in his creation. And what if within God, there's always been mercy and there's always been grace as a part of his character, as a part of his nature. And now in you and I, we begin to see the purpose of him allowing the fall in order for God to demonstrate his grace and his mercy, then there must be objects who need his grace and mercy. Those of us in the room who have been redeemed, that is us. That because God is Trinity, he is three beings in one essence. That also means that before the creation, so before the creation, there was God, but also it means because God exists in Trinity, that before the creation, there was love and community. That before Genesis 1, before God spoke, there was within God, there was love and there was community. There has never been a moment of time when love did not exist. The apostle Paul will write and he will say, uh, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Not only is love the supreme virtue, but because love has never not existed. That within the Trinity, there has always been love and there, and there has always been community, perfect relational harmony that God did not create because he was lonely. God has never been lonely. Loneliness comes as a result of the fall that God created us as an overflow of his love. The apostle Paul will say that the best analogy for the relationship of the Trinity is a Christian marriage. Now, every analogy, including biblical analogies, they all break, eventually break down when they're pressed far enough. But in marriage, you have two people coming together as one and coming from that in most marriages is a child. 
In a good marriage, you don't have kids because you are lonely. If you did, then see me after church and I will hook you up with a great child psychologist that's a friend of mine. A surefire way of messing your children up is creating your children because you are lonely. We create children out of the overflow of our relationship, out of the overflow of love. We create children to love them and to invite them into our families. We invite them into a loving union. And that's what we see in Genesis 1, God's love, the love of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit that it spills out on the canvas of the universe. And he, then he invites us into his love. Because we are created in the image of God, the God who exists in love and community, then you and I will never be complete apart from knowing his love and living in community with others. That you and I have been made in his image, which means you and I, that we have been made for love and community. We've been made to know his love and to be loved by him. All of that gets jacked up in the next chapter, in Genesis chapter three. Our sin and rebellion causes all of the relationships to disintegrate. It isn't just that we are at odds with our creator. It's not just that we're shaking our fist at our creator, but what we're talking about here is a family affair where love is at stake. We're talking about a family dispute here. That is why every sin that you and I commit, every sin is first a betrayal of a father's love. Every sin, the sin that Adam did was a, was a betrayal of the father's love for him. It was saying, I don't trust you to do what's best for me. And the same thing is true for every one of our sins. What we see in the fall is separation. Literally, the family is falling apart. Salvation is us coming back home, being restored back into the family of God that you and I, we've been created for love and community. The love of the father and the son through the presence of the spirit. And you and I have been made for community. We've been made to live in community, community with the family of God. When I speak about community, I'm not talking about Frankfurt. What I'm talking about is a real relationship. I'm talking about relational harmony. Certainly get on Facebook. You know that we do not have within Frankfurt relational harmony. I'm speaking of something much, much more beautiful, much, much prettier than that. What I'm talking about is you coming into the family of God where you can be known and you can know others, where you can be celebrated and you can celebrate others, where you can be held accountable and encourage each other. I'm talking about a family where you can be real and yet be accepted. Wouldn't that be wonderful? To be real and to be open and yet also to be accepted. I'm talking about a place that celebrates with you and a place that challenges you, a place that weeps with you when you weep and rejoices with you when you rejoice. That's what I'm talking about. You've been made for that. Certainly your heart longs for that, longs for those kinds of relationships. That's why we do community groups here. Because and the expression, the visible expression of the family of God to which you've been created to belong in, you've been created to live within, the visible expression of the family of God on this earth is the local church. We don't do community groups during the week because it's a trendy thing that new churches do. That's not why we do them. We do it because it's the way that God has created us and he's called us to live in community. Our community groups that meet during the week, they're incubators for real community, real relationships. And that's what we wanna see happening because that's what you've been made for, made for that. You've been made to know the Father's love. Lastly, before the creation, there was darkness. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was 
without form and void and darkness. Now, it's created darkness, but nevertheless, before the creation as we know it, there's darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the, faces, the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. That what God does here on the first day of creation is what God does in and through his creation. That more than what um, Moses is giving to us, God is giving to us through Moses, I should say, through, the, through the, the spirit superintending over these pages, through this revelation, more than just a description of the events of the first day of, of creation, more than just that, what we have, even in this first verse, is we have a glimpse of the storyline of the Bible. God will create something beautiful, something orderly, something filled with light from something that is without form and void. There will be darkness and then God will speak and his word will go to work. The word of God will bring order to chaos. The word of God will, will take light into darkness. It's not accidental that when John writes his gospel, for those of you that was with us when we went through John, the way that John writes his gospel, starts his gospel account, is very different than Matthew, Mark, or Luke. They all start with the birth of Christ. And John starts with the birth of Christ as well, but he begins it like this. He says in John 1, 1 through 5, in the beginning, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was born in the very beginning with God. All things that were made through him, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The John marries Genesis chapter one with John chapter one. He marries the creation of this earth with Christ's coming, Christ's incarnation, Christ's birth. And so what has happened between Genesis chapter one and John chapter one? Well, a whole lot of sin has happened in those pages. We're gonna cover a lot of it, but a whole lot of sin is what we're gonna see happening. And that's because sin decreates. Sin deconstructs. Sin puts back into the darkness as we're even gonna see next week, back into chaos, back into the void. And Jesus has come to bring order out of chaos to bring light into the darkness. And how does he do it? He does it through his word. The sin brings chaos to your life. Sin unravels your family. It puts darkness in your understanding of self. It mars the Imago Dei. It fractures relationship. It puts you into the darkness of bondage of addiction. And Jesus comes by the power of his word. He comes and he redeems what sin has destroyed. That wherever sin has left a dark void, Jesus is standing there saying, let there be light. And at the end of Jesus's life, a very strange thing, if you don't understand the storyline of the Bible, very strange thing happens. Jesus is put into the darkness. He's put into the void. He's put into what is chaotic. He's put into death. He's put into the unknown. He's put into a grave. He's put into, as the Bible says, the belly of the earth doesn't stay there though. The apostle John points out that Jesus died on the sixth day. That's the same day that man was created. On the seventh day, he rested. 
And then on the first day of a new week, Jesus is raised out of the darkness, out of the void. He's raised again because he is the beginning of a new creation. And in the same way, it is God calling from the darkness, calling from the chaos, calling from the void. He's creating and making his new creation. Shortly after Jesus was resurrected from the dead, Jesus shows up to his disciples. And again, John covered this. We covered it as we preached through John. But I wanna remind you of it. The first thing Jesus does when he sees his disciples is he says, Jesus breathes on them. Like, that's odd. Is that some new Hebrew uh, way of greeting one another? Surely we don't have to do that in the church. But no, what is Jesus doing there on that first day when he breathes the Holy Spirit and tells them, receive now the Holy Spirit? What's the same thing we saw in Genesis chapter one? The same thing that Pastor Brian even alluded to when God blew into the nostrils of man that he had created. He blew life into him. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's beginning this new creation. He's making all things new. Everything that sin has destroyed, everything that has been flung back into the darkness, Jesus is making it new. Has your life been destroyed by sin? Is your life marked by pride? Do you find yourself oftentimes giving giving God in honor of Lamar's loss yesterday, giving God the Heisman, right? Lamar Jackson plays football, but nevertheless, do you do that with God? God thinks, but no thinks. God, I'll just come to church whenever it's convenient. God, I'll just, whatever it may be your excuse, but ultimately in the posture of your heart is one that's not receiving of God, but it's rejecting of God. It's not asking God questions so that you can get answers, but it's constantly questioning God because ultimately you wanna be the determiner of what's right and wrong in your life, what's good and bad. You wanna be the ultimate determiner. You wanna be the ultimate determiner of the direction of your life, of the destiny of your life. And you don't wanna trust him. Is that what you're doing? That's pride. And it comes because of the fall. It's darkness. It's chaos. You're living your life in the void. Are you bound up in the darkness of addiction? Is your family unraveling? Is your self-image distorted? Do you feel that you spend your days in darkness, separated from God and from God's family? Listen, God, godliness is always the path of community. And godlessness is always the path of isolation. We're gonna see that over and over and over and over again in the Bible. The path of godliness is always the path of community. The path of godlessness is the path of isolation separated, living a life in darkness of separated from God and God's family. Here's the good news. If you turn to God by faith in Christ, then Christ can make all things new. That Christ is in the business of speaking his word into the void, speaking his word, saying, let there be light, letting his word go to work. And that's exactly what you need is you need God's word to the power of the spirit to go at work upon your heart and upon your soul. It's the process of putting God's word back inside of you. So the first three verses or first five verses, we should say of Genesis shows us what God is up to in the world. You were made for him to know his love and to be in relationship with him and relationship with his family. You've been created for relationships. And his word is bringing life and order out of the darkness and out of the chaos. 
And so here's my final questions to you as we close. Do you know God? The only way to know God is through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That Christ is the only mediator between man and God. The only way to know Christ is to repent of your sins, to turn to him as a savior, to cry upon him and say, Jesus, save me. Do you know God? It's the reason you've been created is to know God. It's to be in relationship with God. It's to be in right fellowship with God. That's what we see happening in Genesis chapter two. We see a God who comes and visits his creation, lives among his people. God is doing that even today through the power of the spirit. He's doing the same today. Have you received Jesus's offer of salvation? Have you repented and turned of your sin? Have you laid down your pride? Have you said, not my way any longer, God, but your way? I submit to you, to all of your rules, and I want to enjoy all of your blessings. Have you done that? Are you living in community? More than just attending a church gathering, are you living in community, surrounding yourself with the family of God? Living in real relationships and real relational harmony with people. Yes, I get it. It's tough. Calls a, a lot of patience, which is God has patience. It's in his nature and his character. A lot of patience. You've been created in his image, filled with the spirit. You can patiently endure others. A lot of forgiveness. Think about Jesus and his forgiveness. A lot of grace. Think about the grace that God has shown you. How much do you think you get on God's nerves? Let's just be honest, right? The same God that has shown us that we as his creation, we show others that us filled with his spirit, we show that to others. You can get in a PCG. They don't meet this week. They'll meet next week. You can get into one very simply by filling out a connect card. Say, I need to be connected to a family. Right now we've got, I think, eight or nine groups. We've got two more in the pipeline, praise God. We can roll out two new groups within a couple of weeks that you can join and be a part of. So feel free to fill that out. Tell us, is Jesus' word present in your life? And lastly, are you extending that word to others? This makes sense as we read the Bible and we think about the storyline of the Bible, that that's what you and I are doing. We're taking God's light into the darkness. We're taking what, what is orderly by God. We're taking that into what's chaotic and frantic in our culture, in our world. Are you living like that? Are you extending God's grace to others? Do you understand your calling and are you living it out? So we come to a time of the Lord's Supper. Let's think about those things. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Most assuredly, we thank you for your son, Jesus, that comes to bring light into the darkness that we understand the darkness, we understand the void, we understand the chaos that sin brings. And we know that that's your specialty. It's bringing light, taking light into it and bringing what's, what, what's orderly out of what's chaotic. We see that, Lord. We receive that even, Lord, in our own lives. Jesus, we trust you. God, you are the supreme creator over everything that has been made. We believe in you, we kneel before you. No other truth is any more important than that truth that you are the creator. And if you're a creator, then you have rights over your creation. And your word tells us what those rights are. It tells us how we as your creation are to rightly respond to you. 
And I pray, Lord, as we spend time this year in your word, may we come to those conclusions and may you give us more and more faith to trust you, to trust in you and to trust you. Lord, it's in your name we pray. Amen.